Hello, listeners. You're listening to another episode of a Story Screen Presents podcast. I'm your host, Diana DeMuro, and this is the second episode of a new series that I am doing with Mr. Mike Burge called Freaking Out with Flanagan. And that's Mike Flanagan, if you're not familiar. You can catch our first episode. Um, It's going to be on the regular monthly going forward. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit in the filmography of Mike Flanagan, so it's not necessarily going to be in chronological order. Uh, Today's episode, we are going to talk about The Midnight Club, which just dropped on Netflix pretty recently, and we thought it was a fun one. We wanted to talk about it with you guys, and Mike, welcome. Hello, Hello. again. Good to be back. Yeah, so before we really get into it, just like the basic premise of The Midnight Club is a group of terminally ill teenagers in the 90s at the Brightcliff Hospice. And the Midnight Club is them meeting up at midnight to have a drink and share scary stories. And I wanted to ask just sort of like as an icebreaker, were you ever a fan of Goosebumps or Christopher Pike or R.L. Stein or any of those guys? Big R.L. Stein Goosebumps dude. Yeah. I read Goosebumps and Fear Street. I never really got into Christopher Pike. Um, I think just because maybe that I was of that age, but I feel like Goosebumps was maybe a little bit more in line with like where I was at age wise when those books were coming out. I became obsessed with those. I like I had all yeah. of them. I would read them all. I feel like when I was twelve, everyone was trading. R.L. Stein books. Like, they yeah. were like, did you read this one? And mm-hmm. they were passing it off. Yeah, I did Goosebumps. And then I started getting into Fear Street when I got older, which is like kind of like what they were trying to do with all that. And then, um, you know, the Goosebumps show was fantastic. Right. Uh, which I've always, I think this is like a thing that a lot of people have tossed out there too is that like making a Goosebumps show that's for people who are like our age now who were the age when they read goosebumps like making them a little bit more intense like i always think about the haunted mask episode okay uh i don't know if you've ever seen that i have it on vhs downstairs we should watch it but it's been a few years it's got one of the scariest thing it's for kids essentially but it's got one of the scariest things in the world in it where when because she puts on the mask and every time she puts on the mask it like gets harder to take off yeah and it starts to take more control over her and at one point like a third or fourth time she puts it on she looks in the mirror and her eyes are now yellow and she says like whose eyes are those those aren't my eyes mm. and it's like a girl it's like a little girl in it. Right. and you're like ah it's like yeah. the scariest thing in the world did you um ever like what was sort of like your first introduction to any of those like scary stories did you immediately it was always just you saw movies first and then you got into stuff like reading rl stein and and spooky stuff probably because like i saw notoriously like i saw my a babysitter of mine showed me child's play in broad daylight how old were you uh had to be like six or seven i was very young <laughs> i was very young because she just didn't know any better yeah uh, i like I, I obviously how old, how old do you think your babysitter was had to be like 15 16 yeah, it was like classic right. like boyfriend came over yeah they went in the other room they're like you just sit here and they just put something on that was like on the tv <laughs> like a like a vhs they're like, there's a doll in this and it was like child's play and then there was um another movie that i can never remember the name of that's like Burned into my memory too. It was also a horror movie. It was like The Reaping or something like that, like something really smaller and weirder. Gotcha. But ever since then, I was like, yeah, horror movies, cool, yeah. fun. I would say that like one of the one of the things I find more interesting is like I didn't grow up watching scary movies, um, but when I was in fourth grade, my elementary school teacher, Ms. O'Neill, shout out to Ms. O'Neill. I don't know if you're still teaching, but you were awesome. Uh, really got us into reading Edgar Allan Poe and we read Murders of the Rue Morgue and it's like a detective story essentially where there's some murders being taking place in London but in um, you know in reality it's like an orangutan that escaped from the zoo or something like that but Mm -hmm. there's all these like really violent descriptions of this body got shoved up a chimney in a house mm-hmm. and like all the stuff and you're trying to figure out all the clues or we read like Telltale Heart where body got buried under the floor and stuff like that. And I feel like those were sort of like the first instances where I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
looking at the Midnight Club, I kind of like enjoyed this one, even though it is pretty different from a lot of the limited series that Flanagan's put out. Namely, it's got different directors every episode, which I think is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a little more YA. It's a little more tame. It's not as intense, scary. Um, takes place, you know, 1994, 95-ish. And so one of the things that I really enjoyed about this was that, um, you know, it is a teenager ensemble, but I was listening to some like panel discussions with the cast and, you know, there's some, there's some returning players that were in Midnight Mass, which is pretty cool to see them in different roles, but there's a lot of first time actors and kind of listening to them talk about working with Flanagan, I thought was pretty cool because they... Describe Mike Flanagan as being very patient. He's very collaborative. So he would kind of let them kind of take the episode where they thought it should go, but also give advice if they were unclear about stuff um, and kind of just tried to make them feel at ease, a lot of the actors said. And I liked that none of the episodes were like completely predictable. I thought that was kind of a fun aspect to it. And I was wondering, you know, of the of the cast if there was people that you really enjoyed because we're you know we're gonna this isn't spoiler free so if you haven't watched the midnight club you should take a pause go watch it come back you know we're gonna kind of talk about different episodes and there will be spoilers but i was curious you know of the character ensemble or maybe actor that you saw for the first time who'd you like you know who stood out and then i also wanted to talk about you know the big heavy hitter, which is Heather like Langenkamp, and ask you a little bit about your relationship with watching Nightmare on Elm Street and, mm-hmm. that, and that franchise. I mean, yeah, I, uh, Zach Guilford, big breakout in this. <laughs> uh, oh man, he's I, fantastic in this show. I love Saracen. I've I've loved him since Friday Night Lights, and I loved that he was in Midnight Mass, mm-hmm. and he's so great in this show. I like he is the like adorable, you know older, early 20s role model that you would want to have in your life as a teenager that Mm -hmm. is accepting of you and tells you to tell other people to fuck off and be who you want to be. And yeah, oh man, he's so good. It's he's just like he also looks super fly. He does. (laughs) He's got like great, great outfits in this show when he's not in scrubs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's like it's it's just funny that he's like we talked about it a little bit on the previous episode, too. But now this is like the first time we're talking about like a show that Mike Flanagan has done which is what he's primarily more known for yes uh even though some of my more favorite things that he's done are like movies like I think Gerald's Game is like a masterpiece and I think Dr. Sleep is like one of the strangest oddest coolest movies ever I'm excited for when we get to Dr. Sleep but it's neat that like Zach Guilford just showed up like I think Midnight Mass was the first thing he did with Mike Flanagan Flanagan, and now he's back again on like the more immediate thing that he's doing and it's like he just kind of it's cool that like Flanagan is really starting to like we all know that he reuses people and people want to work with it but you're like oh you work perfectly in the vibe yes because like you're gentle and you're a good actor but you're gentle and you look like you might have an edge sure you know so it's like all those things (laughs) where it's like you can kind of do both like the funny you know, because that's the other thing we talked about very briefly, too, in uh, the last episode is that Mike Flanagan's writing is also very funny. It is very like he's, funny. He's, he's able to make you care about characters in a way because, like, you can really relate to them. And Zach Guilford just has, like, you can just relate to him no matter who you are. You're like, totally. oh, I want to be a nice guy, too. Yeah, please. and especially because, like, we're more of the age of the actor of Zach sure. Guilford. I feel like it's easier for us to identify with them. Mm-hmm. What did you think about some of the younger characters? Oh, I mean, like, uh, I liked uh, Ruth Codd, who played Anya. And I think she had never acted before. I, uh, I listened yeah. to an interview, and she just sent in a tape. And then mm-hmm. she did, like, a couple of Zooms with yeah, them. Yeah, and she's going to be in um, The Fall of the House of Usher, the Which next planning awesome. thing. Yeah. And, uh, She's good. She sounds like a, um, she sounds like a, uh, like a, like a sidekick character in like a Scottish Pixar movie, (laughs) um, which is cool. Uh, I also really liked, um, uh, Saryan Sapkata, uh, who played Amesh. I thought he was really, really good. He was great. When he's like, again, we're doing kind of spoilers and stuff like that, jumping around and everything. But when he's like hugging the PlayStation. Yes. It's like I was watching a couple clips 
and uh, and I watched the original trailer last night to kind of just like remind myself about all this stuff because we watched it a bit ago, but you know we yeah, took we our kinda, time with it, so we started watching it leading up to Halloween. And every time I saw him, you know, like when you watch a review or something like that, they'll use the same footage from the trailer because yeah. that's the footage they're allowed to use. And they kept using that footage of him like hugging the PlayStation and like smiling and looking at everybody. And I'm right. just like, dude, like that's like really good. Yeah, I liked. He was very good at you know. Trying to, on the one hand, play it cool, yeah. but in some ways, um, you know, other than Anya, he was sort of like the character that was the most sick. Yeah. And so it was kind of having that like go between seriousness and then his crush on um, Natsuki. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I liked that dynamic, you know, it was yeah. very cool. But I think... Uh... I think William Chris Sumter, who plays Spencer, is kind of like the big breakout Spencer's from it. Spencer's good. You know, yeah. like uh, Amon Benson, who plays Alanka, the lead. You know, she's very... Like, everybody's very, very good in it. And yeah. uh, what is it? Um, I'm looking at up her name right now. Uh, Anara. Anara Simone. Yeah, so she's like... She's her, from Midnight Mass. Yeah. And she's very good in that very different character. Yeah, so like that's it. cool. It is cool. But I think William Chris Sumter as Spencer is kind of like the one where I was like... Oh, this guy can yeah. really act like sure. really well because he's got a lot of different things that he does throughout the show. Like obviously, all of them are, you know, the crux of the show is they play they play the characters themselves, and, the and then they start playing different versions of like different characters and stuff like that. Which I think is really fun. You know, it's sort yeah. of like a, more of an American Horror Story episodic, but within the the same show instead of just like seeing actors that Flanagan uses again and again series to series it's fun in each episode to have them play different people yeah it's kind of like it gives you like it's got this aspect of kind of like are you afraid of the dark yes only you know they're having like you know the is it the midnight society midnight club no no in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, in Are You Afraid? Uh, I think I it's remember. the Midnight Society, which would be very funny if yeah. that's what it is. Uh, but I feel like I also might be getting like brain hit. We're recording this early, yeah. Um, and uh, the like, it, like the idea of having like everybody that's part of like that that club would be in. The sh- like little short films and stuff sure. like that. That would be like that yeah. like Tales from the Crypt and stuff like that. Totally. So it's a neat way to do it, especially when you have like such talented and versatile like young actors doing all of the stuff. Yeah. And I like, you know, probably the first negative thing that I'll say about the show is I like how throughout the show that is balanced. The story that you're seeing that's taking place in the... um was it like Brightcliff? Yes. Or something? Yeah. The, the story that's taking place in Brightcliff and the history of this place and what's going on and these characters and that being shared with these ghost stories and tales at the end yeah. is well balanced. But I feel like the more that the show goes on, especially in like the last episode, it starts to really focus in on the stories that they're telling as like these allegories for how they're feeling and starts to kind of leave behind what's happening in or not care as much about it, I guess. I don't know. I felt like in the last couple episodes that even though I was still liking the stories that they were telling, mm. I was like, yeah, but can we get back to the the hourglass thing yeah, and so Julie maybe, Jane? So maybe let's put a pin in that sure. for a little bit. But in talking about that, what's interesting is I think like, you know, like, what is it about telling scary stories? Because that's sort of the practice. Mm-hmm. And I do think when you're saying, like, it's pretty well balanced, that that is a good sign that this is, like, a good episodic show. Because, like, a lot of fun, you know, Monster of the Week or whatever shows will have that series-long plot line, but then have some other story happening each episode to mix it up. Kind of like X-Files or something like that, where yeah. it's, like... You know, Mulder's still looking for his sister, but then Mm -hmm. all these other things happen week to week. And I think that that is part of the fun of this show and sort of something to consider for people that are maybe more critical of it against, like, Flanagan's other work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, like, when when you're talking about it towards the end, does it pay off or is it, like, is it balanced enough towards the end? I was kind of thinking about it, like, what is it about telling scary stories 
that is important to these characters and like how that works within the framework of the show. And I think it's sort of like, you know, even with the overarching backstory of like this cult, the Paragon, you know, what happened at Bright Cliff, who bought it originally, who, who fixed the crazy elevator in the basement and all that stuff. It's sort of like, that's its own story. And then week to week, you have characters like Alanka who would rather like believe the story or the supernatural aspects of stuff than actually have to like deal with the day to day fear and terror of like death and mm-hmm. just your own mortality and just being human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's sort of like an interesting way. These stories are like a way of them dealing with death and dealing with the unknown. And then a way to like process their own behavior with each other or different nuances. Like you said, it does kind of towards the end really lean on the allegory for sure. Like that that is a way for them to talk about these things instead of actually telling each other. I like that too. I mean, it's like it's the same thing of like they all have their different ways of dealing with this thing. Like one of the best ones is like, you know, Alanka and Sandra are completely different it's because sandra is like the heavily religious one and she believes in this thing that nobody else believes in yeah and alanka's doing the exact same thing totally she's believing it she's just believing in magic and you know like um stuff like that or natural herbs or spring water or whatever miracles you know the same thing they're both made up and rooted in reality so it's like it's so it's like those fun little dynamics between all the characters but the one thing that they can all come together on is that we're all going to die and we can tell these stories and kind of work through what we want to work through by kind of experiencing horrors in like this kind of fun environment right and then also at the same time like the whole point of like uh, making ghosts as they call it is trying to figure out a way to like wake up any ghost that might be living in the house to see if there's an afterlife and or like, yeah you know, exactly like when like, one of them dies like try to shake it like one of the most interesting things about the midnight club is like when alanka does show up like it's been going on for a long time right even beyond like them finding books and realizing it's been happening for, for years. a very long time it's yeah people that are sitting at that table know people who've died who have already died that are no longer in the midnight club or are currently downstairs in right. you know you know like in the quarantine hospice room right yeah. exactly so um, it's like it's got this like air to it. it doesn't feel like alanka just shows up and they're like we just thought of this the other day yeah and i will explain it to you like it, it feels like it's this thing that she's actually walking into and then her as like our kind of um she's kind of kind the of conduit character for the yeah audience. we can yeah, learn she's everything the very naturally which is something that flanagan's really good at in writing yeah i like um, i like the character of kevin you know, Igby, Igby Rigney, I, I liked him as the altar boy in, in Midnight Mass. Um, I think that this is fun because this kind of plays with, you know, his story wasn't necessarily the most interesting story to me, but I liked seeing his acting in that story where he was a little bit more malicious and a little yeah. bit more conflicted mm-hmm. and having those kind of like, like you said, be like sort of ways of displaying what maybe was going on internally with him mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, him being... Pretty low key, pretty yeah. not rock the boat, pretty amiable, just wanting to keep people together as family or the people at Bright Cliff or things like that. Yeah, I feel like maybe one of the things that I didn't really like too much about the last episode in particular with like the the balance of the story at Bright Cliff and the stories being told is that they're using um uh Alanka's and um what's it what's his character's name? Chris. Kevin. Kevin. Uh they're using their stories which Quite frankly, I find to be two of the most more, more the more uninteresting. Sure, like in a single episode, heck yeah, and maybe it is because they spread them further that they become less interesting. But it's like, actually, that probably exactly is why it is because like it kind of breaks like the the, the flow, the, the function of everything. Yeah. Even though there's a reason for it where she's like, oh, I haven't thought up the ending yet. I'm not ready to tell the ending. And he's right. like, oh, if I keep you guys going, it'll keep you alive. So like, there's a reason for it. And I'm not knocking it for that. But I feel like that might be where. Doesn't always work. I'm like, all right, I'm over yeah. this fucking dude with the hammer. Yes. You know, like I'm fucking over it. Yeah. I want to go back to the Paragon stuff. Yes. Like, yeah. That shit is so convoluted in an interesting way. Like I'm yeah. not negatively criticizing the convolution because it is 
convoluted. Yeah. Like all this, cause there's a lot of history to this place. I'm like, I want to learn more about that mystery. This isn't real. Sure. You know, and it, it starts to get to that point where I'm like, I don't care that Kevin's make-believe character is in a mental institution. He's not real. Sure. I get the metaphor and the allegory and how he's growing and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm like, this is the last episode and there's 10 minutes left. Can we go learn about Heather Langenkamp a little bit? Or right. like what's going on outside in the real world? Sure. So I think part of that is like... This is not a limited series. So I've read right. that specifically, um, I was looking at like uh, Mike Flanagan's Tumblr and he said, in, in theory, even though it hasn't been picked up yet for a second season, he was thinking that it would be three seasons. And so he said, you know, the, the leaving some things unsaid or hang cliffhanger, they have a really good fleshed out second season. And so depending on what happens, he's like, I'll share it you know, I'm a, on Tumblr or somewhere else if we, if we don't get picked up for another season. But I think mm. that's also something that we're not used to because his past limited series really do, for the most part, wrap up, oh, you yeah. know? And it's sort of like a weird thing where you're sort of like, well, how much of this cliffhanger or unexplained stuff was, you know, intentional and how much of it was maybe poor writing or just it didn't play out mm -hmm. the way they thought? I mean, this one is like... They'll probably pick it up. Yeah. It's successful and popular enough and they also want to keep, you know, they want to keep the captain of the, the Flaniverse happy. <laughs> Which is so weird. It is. It is weird. <laughs> like they can't, it's like, they can't just like replace him like with all these things they want to do. I mean, and I don't know when um, the fall of the House of Usher is coming out. They might wait and see how that's going to be responded to. But of course that'll be huge because yeah. his other three have been. Sure. Um, But a thing that this show has in common with what I would say is his, I think this is his least interesting show so far to me. Sure. Out of like the four. Okay. And I would say the second least interesting one shares a similarity with this and that's Bly Manor. And that's because that's one that he has the least amount of involvement in directing wise. In Bly Manor, he wrote all the episodes. Okay. But he only directed one or two episodes. And in this, he only directed the first two episodes but he wrote all the episodes, but with a bunch of other people. See, I think it kind of works for this show that there's different directors. 100%. I, I don't, it's not a negative. It's yeah. more like why it might feel a little bit different, especially to people who are like, this is not why I watch a Mike Flanagan show. Sure. It needs to be like, you know, concrete ending, all of that stuff. Right. But like, it's, I think that that's one of the reasons, like this is a much more collaborative right. um project and it's closer to Bly Manor than Hill House and Midnight Mass. Hill House and Midnight Mass, he wrote and directed every episode. Right. So they are purely like his thing coming out there. Right. And so, you know, there's there are certain things that maybe people don't like about those shows because mm -hmm. he has total creative control in that mm -hmm. in that way. I think it's kind of fun because I was looking up some of the other directors for the episodes and it looks like everybody directed you know, the majority of them directed two episodes. There's one or two directors that only directed one episode. But a lot of them have either worked with him on other projects or they've worked in horror or they've worked on, like, teen shows or they worked on, like, Once Upon a Time. So they're kind of, like, this experience of this sort of fantastical element, which I think lends itself better to this particular series, which I think is fun. It'd be interesting when we get to Bly Manor to kind of look at some of those directors and see which episodes maybe you do enjoy more or we feel like it works out a little bit better. Yeah. You know, and whether that's because they've already worked with Flanagan and so they're kind of in that same vein or vibe mm -hmm. or if it's interesting because they're I mean, totally different. I remember different. the directing in Blind Manor being like very representative of Flanagan's kind sure. of viewpoint. Yeah. But also wanting to, I think... A thing that I sometimes forget, and then it's kind of cool when I remember, is uh, and this might be true with other people, is like I forget how how much Flanagan was kind of trying to distance Bly Manor from Hill House, really? like in the sense of like he didn't want them to be compared because like Hill House he worked on for so long, and yeah. Bly Manor was hey Hill House is a success, what else you got? And he's sure. like okay, and like sure. started doing something else, yeah, and it's like. Hill House was like trying to 
turn this gigantic story into this thing that made sense like in modern times and Bly Manor was trying to do the same thing but I think that he was trying to make it aesthetically look a little different like the ghosts are a little different in that but because everything's so perfect in Hill House changing it kind of brought in like negative aspects where you're just like where you're like oh it's not as good as Hill House and I think he was really trying to distance that because he was trying to make something different but at the end of the day, it's like it's a ten episode thing called the haunting, the ha- the uh, the haunting of something. Yeah. It's got some of the same actors. I'm doing it again, and I feel like he was trying to make it a different thing, which is why Midnight Mass is so aggressively different, both yeah. in title. I mean, and I always mood. like Hill House is more of a straight up horror story to me in my mind, and Bly Manor is more like uh, an actual like gothic romance yes like it's yeah. more heavy it is a romance mm-hmm. you know for multiple couples in the show and it's more of a gothic like if you look at like ro- actual like capital r romantic literature like from back in the day like it's a love story where something goes horribly wrong or like yeah. somebody dies or mm-hmm. like that was sort of like the overarching tone of that type of romance and, and you're sort of like, oh, this is so dramatic. Or you're like, this is such a downer. Mm-hmm. But they love each other. Oh, and then you're like, you know, is this the payoff? Is it worth it? And, you know, and I think in that, in that series, it works really well. Um, but it's not the same thing as Hill House. It's yeah, a different Which is, animal, again, like why sure. Midnight Club was so interesting to me as like a project for him. Because it's like... yeah. It's aggressively different, especially totally. from Midnight Mass. Because Midnight yes. Mass is one of the most like... Brutal, violent, yeah, um, and intensely big religious, boy. and it's, intensely it's, it's a personal big boy show. Yeah, like, you have to be a big boy to watch it. Yeah, you have to like people talking. <laughs> well, I, I was, I've been reading some really good stuff about that, but I feel like we should save that for another oh, yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. But um, so, well, let's talk about like in that way. You know, you're kind of talking about how it doesn't totally pan out towards the end of the series, but what story? of the kids telling at midnight club, did you like the best? Mm. Cause I was kind of thinking about it and I, I think my favorite episode is the one called road to nowhere, which is the Natsuki in the car picking up the hitchhikers. I think that was probably my favorite to watch. And Mm -hmm. partially because it has, you know, his, his actors that are his heavy hitters coming back for just cameos for that episode. But I definitely love seeing, you know, um, Henry Thomas anytime he comes back. Mm-hmm, I just, good. I love him being in all of Mike Flanagan's mm-hmm. stuff. It's yeah, just not, like. Not spoiling it, yeah. but I'm very excited to rewatch Dr. Sleep soon. Yeah. Because, uh, he's it's got great. an amazing, he's got an amazing gig in that movie. Yeah. So I, I would say that that's probably one of my favorite episodes of like the uh, kids stories. Yep. I remember um, Spencer's being. Kind and that's fun. more closer to the end. And Spencer's was, I think, one of my favorite ones because that was like, kind of like a sci-fi kind of like John Carpenter, James Cameron yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, fun stuff. Um, that was good. Uh, I also I, liked, um, you know, having Raul Coley like as the cameo. That was kind of a fun episode where mm-hmm. he's sort of like the game creator. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really like the... Um, and it's not really a story in that one, but I really like the uh, the farewell to Anya episode. Oh yeah, where it's really showing kind of like it's showing like the version, her story of what she would have liked things to turn out, but kind of not because it's sort of bizarro right. yeah. where her life is still kind of sad mm-hmm. and she's still kind of an addict even yeah. though she lives and then living without all of her friends mm-hmm. and what that would be like. So yeah. that yeah, that is a pretty cool episode. Um, all right, those are all good. Those are all good. Yeah, those are. I mean, I um, I, I, I just remember the. Um, yeah, it's probably the Amesh and Spencer ones, just because those have a little bit more of like a genre twist to like the classic yeah. horror aspect. Yeah. Which I just like. You know, I like horror just straight up. Don't get me wrong, but sure. I like it when it's either doing something aggressively different and interesting or if it's mixing genres which just naturally leads to something a little bit different like, sure like barbarian you know which i feel like we even brought up last last week too yeah i feel like, like well it's fresh in our it's, minds it, it's just such uh it, there's no like real genre twisting to it it's just like the way it's presented you're just like 
I've never, it's just never been cooked like that before. Yeah. You're just like, this is insane. Like, how did you make this? Yeah. So then, um, what do you think about, like, let's, let's talk about the quote, real life plot line and okay. all that batshit crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about like, you know, the, the impossible dream of curing yourself that Alanka has. And then, uh, Samantha Sloyan as Shasta, the like mm-hmm. hippie lady in the woods gathering creek water and telling her there's healing properties and, you know, calling her bright girl and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about as far as like that hourglass tattoo? We kind of have the, the, we have the, the regular Katie Parker coming back as a say so or the self dubbed, you know, guru mm-hmm. who lived at the house. We've got, the weird old couple that keeps coming back that's sort of like paired with it's kind of fun how they play have you seen dead again did you see with kevin brana and oh yeah emma thompson mm-hmm. i love that movie mm-hmm. or that movie really fucked me up when i first saw it because it like it's it, a cool movie it's, it's a it's, cool movie it's, groovy. it's sort of like the idea of reincarnation and you expect emma thomas to be the reincarnated version of emma thomas in the old story and then mm-hmm. you realize that you know, spoiler And their alert. actual relationship in real life too now yeah. in hindsight really affects yeah. the tone of that movie. Totally. Really, yeah. And you know, it's it's flipped, so they're kind of reincarnations of each other. It's just very cool. Um looking at the the weird older couple that sort of plague Alanka and Kevin, you know, mm-hmm. when when they're kind of seeing flashes of this older version of, of Brightcliffe and mm-hmm. then Kevin sleepwalking. And then Alanka's looking in the mirror and she sees a scary old man. You know, mm-hmm. so give me give me a little feedback on on the weird quote unquote real real story that's been happening all season. I mean it's it's like a little mystery of like, all right, what happened here? you know, all the way back in the day when there was like a cult living here. What happened before that? What happened after? What's happening now? Yeah, like what happened in the 1890s? Yeah, there's like a little history to it. Kind of like... Land or whatever. Yeah, which is kind of like a similar thing that Hill House and Bly Manor do. It's like they kind of jump around and be like, it's always been spooky as shit, you know? And it's like all these different people interacting with it. Like what did did, uh, the Asaiso character actually do to Julia Jane to heal her? You know, mm-hmm. because now we find out, you know, she was gone for a week and then specifically they were like, yeah, wear a nightgown, just come walking out of the woods, mm-hmm. pretend whatever, you yeah. know, and then you're like, okay, so then what actually did heal her, at mm-hmm. least temporarily? Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's one of those things where it's because it, there is no like clean ending yeah. like, and they're just keeping it going. It's kind of like, well, we didn't really get any answers right there. Right. As far as like what's going on. So... If anything, we just got like some more questions and, you know, I don't, I'm not against that, but I can see why people are a little like, you didn't really give us a whole lot. Even if there's going to be a second season, like you really didn't give us a whole lot at the end there. You kind of were just like, but there's even more. And I'm kind of just like, yeah, but the the table's already full. Can you take some stuff off the table first before we start adding things on? a couple things. Yeah. Like just give me, give me a couple answers here real quick. So let's talk Heather Langenkamp. So she's. Dr. Georgina Stanton. Mm-hmm. She's running Brightcliffe. She's like calming and kind and, you know, we think a woman of science. But then at the end, we see she's got the little Paragon hourglass tattoo mm-hmm. and she's bald. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to think like she's currently sick? If she's still bald, rocking a wig? Mm-hmm. Or, you know... Is she maybe the daughter of a say-so grown up? Does that work math-wise? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? It'd be too far back. Would she be a say-so? I don't know. I'll be completely upfront. I have no idea what that means. When it happened, I was like, what? Yeah. I mean, like, I get it. I'm like, okay, so she's bald, which means she was sick or is still sick. Yeah. And she's got a tattoo on the back of her neck, which means at some point, She's she got a tattoo in the background. Yeah. I was like, does that mean she's a part of it or, or a believer in some way? Did they put it on? I don't know. Yeah. Like, uh, so on the I, back of her neck. Is is she still with them? Was she with them? Yeah. Uh, like, I was like, these are all questions that are just kind of popping up, and I'm like, okay. And to Alanka, she's pretending she doesn't remember the patient Julia Jane, which is the adult Shasta character, and so right. Georgina Stanton is effectively definitely older than that character. Right. And like when she brings up Julia Jane, 
um, Julia Jane. When Alonka like, brings up Julia Jane, like, yeah, Heather Langkamp's like, huh, what? Yeah, well, you know, like, oh, come yeah. on, man. She There's lied. a picture of her in the hole. She lied. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, she her backstory is that she has a son who also died. So then, did that kid? Did they try and do weird? blood juju sacrifice on that kid to save him maybe 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 not who knows who knows yeah so we'll see but what'd you think about having her back after not really watching her in anything since really nightmare on elm street i mean uh heather langenkamp has been in like i watched the movies uh the in search of darkness documentaries gotcha. which she is like in a lot fun um so and those are very recent they've been making those for like the past like five or six years so like i've been seeing her in a lot of interviews a lot lately and last year i watched all the nightmare on elm streets and like watched documentaries on them and stuff for like the article that i wrote on all of them which you so, can find on storyscreenbeacon.com. You can, VHS Nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to do The Exorcist this year, but I got too busy. I'll do it, I'll do it for Christmas. Can. Yeah. It doesn't have to be Halloween. Um, so, like, I, I've, uh, I just went through, like, what, she's in a lot of those movies, too. Like, yeah. people forget that, you know, she's not just in, like, one or two of them. Like, she kind of keeps popping up and coming back. Um, and... So I guess I, in the past like couple years, I've had like a lot more Heather Langenkamp in my life than most people. Sure. So That's it was true. kind of like when she popped back, back in, I was like, like, oh, right. Yeah. Hello, old friend. Yeah, there she is. Yeah. yeah. Patron saint mm-hmm. of horror. And she's good. Like she's, she's good. just like any of these, like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and even something like Henry Thomas and stuff like that, even yeah. though it's like a different genre. You know, they're just like these uh, people, these actors who were like seminal in genre films and big movies way back when um and now they're kind of coming back as like these kind of like uh like grounding uh like elder statesmen sure. kind of stuff you know, like giving like but a giving them a respect yeah. mm-hmm. like giving them a title we nod to you mm-hmm. your your past work your mm-hmm. history yeah i do like that what do you think about the 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 old ghost couple the old man and the old woman mm-hmm. and sort of like why are they still there? Why are they popping up? Um, what do you think about that theory that they're like eating people's years? Like that story of like, you know, a spirit that lives on on someone else's de- mm-hmm. death or remaining time. On the yeah, planet. like a life succubus. <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. sort of like I'm a succubus sure, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, I, I guess it could be. I'm sure that they'll reveal it if they make another season, but yeah. again, like they don't really explain what it is. True, uh, or like the feeling that Kevin and Alonka have met before, mm-hmm. and then are sort of alternating with these weird ghosts. Yeah, kind of plays with reincarnation, but not quite. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, sure. I guess that's what it is. I but mean, it's sort it, of weird to have the ghosts if they're reincarnated. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, it's doesn't again, quite it's make sense. Convoluted. It's like sure. there's a there's a couple extra spices in here where yeah. I'm like, well, now I'm not getting the turmeric because you added all of this stuff. Like it's, <laughs> and then you're like, well, can I try and focus on the turmeric real quick? And I'm like, well, no, because now there's too much of this, too much spice. Yeah, yeah. So I watched um, like a a YouTube video of uh, someone from Collider interviewing the cast, and they asked a really fun question that I want to ask you now, which was, if real life you was in the Midnight Club, what would your mug or cup look like, <laughs> and what would be in it? Which I thought was kind of fun. Uh, it would probably be the original. From the 80s Batman mug that I have here. Okay. That was the mug. I think I've told the story on the podcast before where like it was a mug that I had ever since I was a kid. Sure. And I was an idiot and brought it to work in a kitchen and somebody, a a really good friend of mine bumped into the shelf that it was on and it fell and it broke. And without me noticing, they went and bought another one on eBay and replaced it. But then I realized it didn't have certain scratches on it and it had a sticker on the bottom that it never had before. Oh, and so I was she like, didn't tell you. She just, no, she tried to she tried it. Because she was like, because everybody knew that oh, I had that's it since different. I was a kid. I thought, I thought you knew and she just tried to get you. No, they it. tried to like just replace it without me noticing at first. And then I was like, Ooh, what is this? Yeah. If we've learned yeah. nothing from literature and movies, mm-hmm. that never quite works out. Uh, so that's my <laughs> Batman mug. It's like a solid black mug with the Batman symbol from the original I movie. thought that was Star Wars. I thought it was your Star Wars mug that broke. Okay. No. That makes uh, sense. Okay. And then... Uh, what would be in that mug? Whiskey. Whiskey? 
course. It'd be booze. Bourbon. Okay. Okay. Just a little. Well, I mean, you know, the majority of the Midnight Club does sample the booze, wine, or otherwise that they get sneak out of wherever, Mm -hmm. or people are drinking tea. Yep. Or water. Whatever they're feeling. Yeah. Okay. Um, What about you? I was thinking uh, definitely probably one of those like Welch's jelly jar glasses or or McDonald's novelty glasses like you got me the tea glass. I would say it's probably one of the glasses that was a Star Wars glass that was at my grandma's house all the time nice. that I would find. My friend Lara in high school had a couple of those and they were the oldest things in their cabinet and she would she would kind of pseudo get mad at me that I would always find it and mm-hmm. you, and I would pick that out to use if I was having dinner at their house. So Heck yeah. pr- probably be something like that. Uh, you know, if it's going to be w- booze, probably maybe whiskey, but you know, if you're in for the long story, I'd probably go wine. You know, mm-hmm. you go with some red wine if you're going for the long yarn. Yeah, something sippy. you could sip a little slower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or just some straight up, you know, sleepy time. Some kind of good good tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of your et glass, I'm looking forward to we're doing because we're recording this today, and then tomorrow's pasta night. We're showing planes, trains, and automobiles, and we got all the vendors. Fun. I'm gonna do some crazy shopping at those vendors for Christmas. Christmas? Oh yeah, fun. They got some good stuff. Yeah, yeah nice. Get some more glasses like nice. That. Uh, also, too, like on the the thing, like when you asked me that question, it reminded me like an interesting thing about this show, much like a very another very popular show on Netflix. It utilizes nostalgia, but it's a different decade. Yeah. And it's making us feel older because sure. it's starting to become this thing where the night like the way that this thing operates as a kind of 90s time capsule, um, you know, culture wise in like what it's trying to do. Is exactly what Stranger Things did in the first two seasons with the eighties. Sure, not so much anymore. They still do it a little bit, but yeah, it's a little more. Mis- now it's just like you know we're hearing that. songs that we heard in high school. You know what you I know? really? You're like, oh boy, right. I will say, whoever cut together the trailer, fuck yeah, for mm-hmm. Midnight Club, because when when they were using and and tweaking that Toady song, mm-hmm. uh, Possum Kingdom. Is great. Yeah. I fucking used to blast that on the mm-hmm. radio. But I mean, like, the whole, even the whole thing with, like, Amesh wanting a PlayStation. Yeah. You know, because he's always handing names off all the ones that he's ever had. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I'm never going to see a PlayStation. He wants to live long and enough to see like, that. Oh, you're talking about a thing that I remember coming out. Right, that you, you were know? also excited for. Yeah, and it's like, sure. you know, like, the early 80s stuff, like, with, like, when they're doing all, like, the Dungeons and Dragons and they're talking about different technology yeah. and stuff, you're like, oh, right, me, like, the 80s. Yes. And now it's getting into the 90s because, like, again, like, it always kind of takes, like, 30 years or so for that stuff to start happening. Sure. And it has, once again, always worked like that. Yeah. It's always, like, in the 70s. They, in fun. the 70s, it was even quicker. They were making movies about the 50s and being nostalgic. <laughs> like, American Graffiti yeah. was only made, like, less than 20 years after when it was taking place. Sure. Um... Yeah, but I am I am kind of here for the the '90s nostalgia because it, it is fresh and it's really fun. <laughs> it's neat. It's a little different. It's a little different. You're like, oh, it's it's extended '80s, but yeah. it's a little different. And like, not to like keep plugging articles and stuff that I've done before, but like, I wrote that piece a few years ago on like nostalgia as like a positive, being used as like a positive weapon in movies. And I would say, in an as unbiased as I can be, mm-hmm. which is hard. I think that's one of your best articles. Thank you. Yeah. It's because yeah. uh, like nostalgia, I like to be, I don't like to be contrarian, but I do like to go like, what's everybody thinking? And do I think that? And if I don't, why? Sure. Kind of thing. Like, yeah. and just like trying to work it through and like nostalgia is a thing that can do a lot of good, both plot wise and story wise and character development wise and sure. also aesthetic wise. Yeah. Um, but it also is very uh, easy and can be very lazy, just like anything else. Well, it, it could be easy to fall into tropes. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it's easy to kind of, like, use that as a crutch. Yes. As as a, as opposed to, like, something that can be a little bit more foundational to, like, why things are happening. Sure. You know? Like, the Stranger Things Season 1, like, the whole idea of Dungeons & Dragons being used in that is not just a nostalgic kind of twist. Like, it's very important to the whole story. It's yeah. where the names of the bad guys even yeah, come it's from. Yeah, it's the framework, for yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, for episode, each episode and for, like, the overarching show, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Oh, God, that first season. Oof. First season's so good. Whew. First season's so good. Um, So, 
any, you know, I know we're, we're talking about there was like a lot of weird stuff left up in the air. You want to just spitball some, what's, what's some theories? Even if you don't think they are going to happen, what would be like a fun spoilery theory that you're like, maybe if next season this ended up being why that happened? Uh, well, assuming, I like assuming we get the be, second season. Yeah, if there's, <laughs> if there's going to be three seasons, then I would imagine season two would be the one where they break away from the norm tradition of the structure so that they can return back to that for the third season. That's usually how those work. Empire. So I would imagine more like a road trip. <laughs> Okay. Kind of thing, and maybe camping, and Zach Guilford can be the one that's like the counselor, like taking them around, and mm. they can do more of like a midnight society kind of thing. Okay, uh, like where they're telling stories around the campfire. Fun. Uh, obviously, you're. Gonna I mean, have they to can have... do that down at the beach or wherever they're going. Right. Maybe they can do something yeah. like that, or like they'll lock off down there or something. So then they have to find another place to go. Obviously, there'll be new characters. Yeah. They'll bring some people like, in. Like, what's gonna happen with the? Shasta Julia Jane now that she you know she's acknowledged as she was just using Alanka mm-hmm. you know to get back into the basement are all those you know cult hippie society commune that's next door on the bordering property is that going to stay there are they going to be like reignited to like storm the hospice and attack them they're just they're just all out there are they gonna flee and just totally leave and it'll be like roanoke you'll just see the you know the paragon symbol carved in a tree and that's it and you won't know what the hell it was for i mean (laughs) if they don't make another season it's gonna be like yeah it's like again like that's the whole thing where it's like they really kind of like didn't take any precautions to like oh man if we don't like you know you always have those classic like you know night court like kind of stuff where it's just like well i mean like we all went our separate ways but they could come back for another one if we wanted to and it's just like all right well now they're not yeah um which to this day i still maintain that the americans could come back you could do that for one more season you could totally fucking do it hell yeah hell yeah um i mean i know she would look different but their daughter him. I would love to have her yeah, come no back. Spoilers for the yeah. Americans, though. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 more Zach Guilford, please. Yeah, uh, new characters would be fun and interesting. That's true. You're gonna have a new patient, maybe. Um, at least one or two new patients. Well, because you, you already to. had one character leave who was healed mm-hmm. in th- quotes. Yeah, you know. another character die. Another character die. Two people have gone. Yeah. Sure. Um, Maybe yeah. maybe a little more backstory on Georgina Stan, Doctor Stan. Probably. I, mean, I want to know I why like she's tea. got the tattoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to know why, but yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it's I don't. Not re- as compelling. Yeah, I, I, like wants a hard word. Sure. Like you know. Sure. I if they tell me, I'll listen. Like, is the old <laughs> is the old couple that's you know are they the equivalent of Pearl to to watching X? You know, like are we gonna get some yeah, some kind of standalone else. episode about them mm-hmm. on the property? Whether like the property is corrupted and has some kind of real energy, or is it the people that were there that did it? You know. Yeah, yeah. There'll probably be like a little bit more history outside of the cult thing. Yeah, I feel like they kind of touched on that a little bit more, and obviously with the. Uh, the doctor reveal at the end, they'll do that some more. But I'd imagine they'd also go back before that, like when it was first built, before the cult kind of like moved in and like took sure. up shop and everything. Sure. They'll probably focus on that a bit. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Any other kind of outstanding tidbits you wanted to talk about? Uh, no. Let me see here. All my notes. Uh, I mean, again, it's it's one of those things where it's kind of interesting that as far as like shows on Netflix go, it's like Hill House written and directed completely by Bly Manor. He's splitting things up. Yeah. Midnight Mass completely written and directed by Midnight Club. He's splitting things up. So it's kind of nice that he's like zigging and zagging. Um, well, I haven't really looked into it too much, but it'll be interesting to see for Fall of the House of Usher how many episodes he's directing of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's sort of somewhere in between. You know, maybe he yeah. maybe he'll end up directing more episodes, but not all of them. Who knows? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> like uh, I remember I, I looked up, I saw that uh, you know it's it's interesting that like obviously a lot of the stories that they're telling are all like different stories incorporated from the Midnight Club. 
uh, sure. from the uh, from the, there, the books there, by Christopher Pike. Well, I think that was the cool thing. So yeah. the Midnight Club is one book by Christopher Pike, and mm-hmm. then Flanagan was saying that he used a lot of Christopher, Christopher Pike's Pike books yeah. to, to make up these other stories, mm-hmm. which is a really fun way to incorporate that. And then also like a nod to him being a big fan of Christopher Pike and mm-hmm. just reading those as a kid. So that's that's pretty cool. That is a good way to do it for sure. Yeah, it's like it's just an interesting kind of way to do like uh, that kind of goosebumps adjacent Fear Street, R.L. Stein adjacent kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, it's crazy that his name is Christopher Pike as well. Yeah, as a Star Trek fan, like yeah. I was like I never I knew that Christopher Pike, the writer and the Midnight Club books, ex- like his books existed. But I was but I never mind, I never yeah. ever connected. I'm just like, wait, written by who? That's probably not his real name. It's one of those things where if you said that to me, I would think that maybe his name was actually Christopher something else that mm-hmm. sounded like Pike, but your brain was tweaking yeah. it and mm-hmm. you were just saying that, you know? <laughs> so it, it is fun that it, that's what the name actually yeah. is. Your father was captain of a starship for seven minutes. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Bruce Greenwood played Christopher Pike in the Star Trek movies, and he's also in Gerald's Game. Oh, yes. He's so good in Gerald's Game. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be talking more about movies by Mr. Mike Flanagan in the future. I think we talked about trying to cover some films before we do another limited series. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll go for Hill House a little bit after that. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. if, uh, if you like, please, you know, hit that like button, give us a rating on what you listen to. If it's on Apple Podcasts, if it's on Spotify, whatever you can do for us here, you can check out more episodes of other podcasts that are all Story Screen Presents, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, but there's always links to them on our website, storyscreenbeacon.com. You can go to that content tab, click that. We've got articles coming out every week, podcasts dropping every week. So there's always fresh content out there for you guys. We send out a weekly newsletter that'll give you info about the actual brick and mortar story screen Beacon Theater in Beacon, New York. And it'll also let you know if there's special events coming up, fun things like Mike doing VHS pasta night, which is going to happen this week. And just, you know, cool stuff going on. But uh, hit us up if you want any comments on things or questions about things that you want to hear us talk about in the future you can we'll always welcome the feedback yeah so uh tell us what to do yeah so this has been episode two freaking out with flanagan Mm -hmm. a story screen presents podcast hit us up on storyscreenbeacon.com or on twitter instagram or you know as long as twitter lasts in the dying days we'll see we'll see what happens and uh all right peace my friends bye bye (laughs) 